Welcome to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio. This podcast delivers insights on medical device packaging from regulatory affairs, process management, as well as discussions on the latest in sterile device packaging technologies. Each episode, our host, Charlie Webb, speaks with global experts to bring the most relevant information to our esteemed listeners. As sterile packaging compliance becomes increasingly more challenging, it is vital to avoid information gaps that could risk your medical device packaging program. Avoid package failure risks and build your skill set from your colleagues' experience and from insights from sterile device packaging subject matter experts. You are listening to Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, Spot Radio. Hello, everyone. It's me again, Charlie Webb, broadcasting from our studios here in beautiful Santa Barbara County, California. On this episode, like every episode, we're going to chat about medical device packaging. Well, most episodes anyway. We like to cover a lot of topics, even in medical device manufacturing. Today, we will be talking about validation. You know, when I want to reach into this story, we've had several avenues of this discussion over the years. I think the best way to really understand validation is to speak to people who are doing a lot of dissimilar projects. Of course, the best way to do that is to reach out to contract manufacturers. And we've done that over the years. Had a great conversation with Westpac. We spoke to them about accelerated aging, packaging compliance labs. We love the folks over there. Talked about medical device packaging in general. And I can't wait to get both Westpac and packaging compliance lab back on this podcast. Well, today we're going to talk to JPAC under this same series that we'll be doing this year. More contract packagers, more stories. You know, again, with the contract packagers, they have multiple clients with multiple challenges, a variety of devices and packaging configurations and sterilants and so on. So I think the best way to hear that story is right from the mouth of the people who are challenged with these oftentimes quick deploy solutions for packaging a medical device. We're going to do a lot of that this year. Well, to get this conversation going, I want to introduce you to our guest today. His name's Jeff Barrett. So let me tell you a little bit about Jeff. Jeff Barrett has more than 25 years experience building high growth medical product based companies. He holds an MBA from Boston University Graduate School of Management, as well as a BS in industrial engineering and a BA in economics from Rutgers University. Well, I got Jeff on the phone to hang out with me right now. Hey, Jeff, why do you say we have a chat about medical device packaging? Thanks for being with me here today. Charlie, thanks for having me today. Well, we're going to talk about validation today. First, before we get going here, let's talk a little bit about all the cool things you do over there at JPAC. Well, I'm the president and CEO of JPAC. We've been around for over 40 years now. We're a contract manufacturing partner to med device and diagnostic OEMs. And our specialty, our niche is really with new products. So either a large OEMs or even startup or expansion phase that are introducing new products to the market and need to go through assembly and packaging and sterilization partner. So we're a turnkey provider of those services. Well, I know that you guys have been around for a very long time. What is it, 40 years? Yeah. Wow. Yes. Well, finally, somebody that's been around as long as me. Well, you, <laughs> there you go. I'm happy to talk about packaging validation. That's what we do here at Spot Radio. And thanks so much for reaching out to us. Let's start from the very top. A lot of the medical device manufacturers that we work, a company I'm with, Vanderstahl Scientific, are looking for packaging machinery to do their stuff. And I think a lot of the challenges that we see from these early customers, many are startups, is they really are quite surprised to find out how girthy 11607, now 2019, has become. 
Someone once said they spent more time decorating their new office at their startup than they did concentrating on packaging. And I believe that may be true. Uh, So we're finding now that as they unfold the story of medical device packaging and sterilization, validation, and so on, that many are sort of blindsided. So let's start from the beginning. What does packaging validation look like from your desk? Well, it starts with the customer coming to us. And I think the biggest thing that we see is a a misunderstanding or an unrealistic expectation on timing and what it requires. So that that's something that we were trying to do with educational material as well as just talking to customers about it so they understand, uh, as you mentioned, the girthiness mm-hmm. of the standard. And, you know, we're talking about the ISO 11607 standard, there's the part one and part two, which deals with how do you design your packaging system and then how do you validate it? So just at a high level, you know, it's it's a 60-page document. Mm. It's a lot. And it's so complicated that they actually published another pretty long document as a guidance document to understand how to, how to apply it. So I guess at a high level, I think it's really important to understand or bring the standard to reality because there's a lot of confusion around it as far as what's recommended versus what's required. And that's where the shell should stuff comes in. Right. <laughs> so at the at a high level, let, I think it would be helpful, you know, to kind of bring it to the layman's terms or bring it in the reality of how do you apply this standard and what are the things that we see as a, you know, a turnkey uh, assembler, packager and sterilizer of products and a designer of packaging We have just seen common themes over the years that I think could be helpful to understand. Let's look at the first part of the standard because this gets overlooked a lot. So the first part of the standard called part one is looking at the package system design. And what a lot of customers don't understand that a packaging system is more than just the package of the product in a pouch or in a, in a tray sealed with a Tyvek lid. It's the whole system, right? It's, it's your shelf cartons, it's your corrugate cartons, it's how it's palletized, it's a whole host of things. So that's one thing that we find ourselves trying to explain to customers up front. The other big, big thing is the standard requires that there's a level of taking the customer requirement into consideration. And that is, how does this product, how does this sterile product get transferred to the sterile field at the user, at the doctor level, right? Most of our customers, I would say, have missed that piece of the standard and haven't gone through that. And this is as simple as working with scrub nurses and potentially doctors and surgeons and how they want to receive that product into the sterile field. There's different ways that we see, right? There's situations where the package is opened and virtually dumped onto a sterile tray within the sterile field. There are other situations where the product needs to be more delicately handled and opened and then brought into the sterile field so that there's no cross-contamination or opportunity for damage. It's the really big, big piece to that part one of the standard. I think from JPAC's perspective, assuming that the customer works through that level, we're typically dealing with standard types of packages, right? You've got pouches and you've got thermoform trays with lids. You've got 
products that need low humidity or gas flushing or certain pouches that don't let light exposure. But in the end, there's a lot of standardization with these packages and the equipment that's used to, to seal these packages. But one thing that we see is, and that we do, is we have to do a certain level of feasibility testing because if you talk to the labs, you know, they're going to tell you that up to 30% of their package tests fail. And this is an expensive proposition, right? You're looking at a $20,000 plus two, three months worth of work Mm. that has to be repeated if the packaging fails. So what we do here is what we call feasibility testing, right? So you're taking that package and doing some level of testing to it so that you're almost 100% sure it's going to pass when it gets to the lab. So for our world, that's some vibration testing, some drop testing, some of the common tests that are going to be used at the lab setting. And we want to make sure that those are, are clean before it goes out. So I think part one of the standard that is designing your packaging system, those are the key things that we see that fall through the cracks. The, the taking the, you know, the surgeon and scrub nurse into consideration and also getting some level of feasibility testing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we have some customers that through budget constraints, they tend to not want to do the feasibility testing. And that that is just highly not recommended. <laughs> For sure. So, so you get into part two of the standard, right? 11607 part two is all about validating that, that package. Some of the issues that we see around that that come up time and time again, there are several, right? One is consideration of the entire path from the factory to the surgeon, right? To the sterile field. We get into situations where customers aren't prepared to really talk about how do they want this to go, right? Is there a pallet involved? And how many go on a pallet and so forth? And then is that pallet broken down and common carriers used to transfer it to a hospital? And then once it gets to the hospital, how is it handled from there? So there's a whole cycle of handling that needs to be considered. I would say a common failure we see is that validating a pallet is just not the same as validating a shipping container mm-hmm. going to a customer. And that that needs to be considered. So you have to consider what's actually going to go on here. As an example of that, we've had some issues with blister packs filled with liquid in that it was validated under one standard, but in reality, uh, due to customer issues and manufacturing issues, it, it's had to go through a different mode of transportation, like a, a container on the ocean that gets very, very hot or air shipment that there's fluctuations in pressure and temperature and time that can impact liquid in a foil pouch. Very, very important. The um, feasibility testing, as I mentioned, is critical to the first phase. But once you get to the, the second phase, you're, you're talking about the actual validation, which consists of a couple things, right? You got to do performance testing to make sure that the product's protected and the package remains intact. And then you've got to do stability testing of that seal, right? To make sure that the seal can maintain its effectiveness through whatever they need for a shelf life. Things that we see a lot, the first and foremost is that determining worst case conditions, right? Because the standard, what it's requiring you to do is make sure you're validating under worst case conditions, Mm -hmm not a validated process condition, right? Right. So as your listeners should understand as worst case conditions is 
the product or the seal in particular can still be in specification, but it's on the edge, right? You're at your worst case sealing parameters. So what does this mean as your contract manufacturer or internally in your own facility? You've got to conduct an OQ on that sealing process to go from low parameter to high parameter and make sure it's dialed in. But when you go off to packaging validation, the samples that you run have to be from that OQ, what we call OQ low. Mm-hmm. And in essence, it's your seal is on the edge and you're going to bring it through validation to make sure even if it's on the edge of the low end, it still passes. Very, very important. You know, I can continue on if you have any questions or comments on. Sure. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to come back on is you mentioned about the lab study that you did with the uh, containment system with liquid in it and how it would pass in the lab, but in the real world fail. You know, that's something that we see in validation quite a bit where we have a group of engineers. Oftentimes it's outside consultants coming to a medical device manufacturing company. They don't have the captive intellectual capabilities to be able to perform that particular task. So they look outside for SMEs that can conduct packaging validation. And what we see is they create this beautiful document. I've actually seen several, you know, they don't miss a beat. It's, it's a, a fabulous process that they developed and then they leave the building and then they leave all of the uh, sort of critical managing of that process up to people who are less trained. Sometimes maintenance people have been in charge of a quality plan for that device. So I think there's a danger when we don't look at what now there's the new focus is on output testing. Is that something that really needs to be looked at? So we are leaning on our side of the industry for much more testing throughout the day. For instance, we'll do Field testing's in the morning, middle of the day, end of the day. This is the new MDM sort of workflow because we don't want to just have the theoretical data that says that, you know, in our design of experiment, we're using L8 arrays to come up with this to Gucci modeling and we're doing all this terrific stuff. We know exactly how the device will perform, but a lot of them don't realize that there's a diminution in terms of performance on machine component parts. There may be an air-driven machine. There's a so-called river effect where someone's filling up an inner tube on the back on a Friday in the warehouse, drops critical pressure on a packaging machine, and now you have a failure. It's a tale, but still one that's uh, very telling. So we have to make sure that we're looking at the very critical output. I mean, we're talking about patient outcome metrics when we're talking about output on packaging machinery. So we need to make sure that our theoretical data is in place. We have all the pretty files in place. When we do our audit, we hand over folder after folder. But the most important folder probably you can hand over is a list of all of the output testing that you've done daily to make sure that you're bracketing those events to be certain that you didn't get a a pouch failure. So I think that's where that theoretical data that I believe it'll work in this perfect lab coat, PhD in engineering or in your building. But then after that, trying to keep that process true to life and making sure that nothing is waning. You're not getting a process creep, which is the biggest issue when we see here about 483s or not a recalls is there was a performance creep that wasn't watched after validation was performed. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Let's take a high level, right? This is a sterility issue, important issue. It has to be a validated process because you can't verify it, right? You can't take a sterile package and verify it sterile other than a visual inspection. You've got to actually test it. 
So even though we've got a good validation process in play here, you have to make sure your manufacturer, whether it's your own manufacturer or your outsourcing partner, has some level of in-process testing, as you mentioned, to make sure that those seals are good. And the standards define what tests are required to do that. And there's various options, right? You, you can do a visual in combined with a bubble leak or also the dye penetration testing. There's, there's various ways to do it. What we do here is we focus more on the peel-based testing, bubble testing, as well as visual inspection. But absolutely agree. It's got to be done throughout the shift and you got to have you know procedures in places. What do you do if mm-hmm. there's a failure? How do you contain that failure? Exactly. You mentioned the new user piece of packaging. And this is something that really, I haven't really seen much of it into the last 24 months. I'm on a, a few boards and we talk about the last hundred yards and we talk what I call the final third. That's the brown truck delivering medical devices to hospitals and their journey through central purchasing, storage use, and all of those other sort of distal tip of the delivery part. So what is the regulatory body ISO, for instance, what are they asking for us? What is expected from a medical device manufacturer? Do we actually have to have humanoids do some testing? How qualified do these people have to be? Uh, What's the expectation? How should that be addressed on a document? Our expectation from the standard or our interpretation of the standard is that it needs a level of testing at the clinician level, right? What we've done, we've worked with local hospitals and offered customers the opportunity to take their prototype package or their interim package and actually get some scrub nurses involved, right? Because scrub nurses are typically the ones that are handling getting these products into the sterile field Mm -hmm. for surgeons to process. And to us, it's as simple as that, right? Just talking to them, doing some testing, make sure that we understand how the product is going to be handled. Some products are just opened and the contents are dumped onto a table Mm -hmm, in the sterile field. Some products are more carefully handled due to their functionality. Some surgeons like products stored in a certain way in the sterile field. So we don't see it as a huge burden, but it, it really requires you talking to customers and having them do some level of evaluation. That should all be done in a, in a protocol, right? So the protocol should be written with that assumption and it doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah, that's what we tend to do. Engineers, we make things hard to read sometimes. We suffer through that quite a bit here. We talked about a little bit earlier, on the packaging side, we seem to be sort of marginalized sometimes when we're in the device part. You know, this is all the exciting stuff, new device. When your customers come to you, and as we talked about, they're a little bit taken back sometimes about what the process looks like moving forward when we're talking about packaging validation. And, and we're moving into a denser sort of vista of what medical device packaging is all about. I mean, I've noticed lately we have a lot more of these sort of internal chipboard sort of containment parts that are going inside of pouches to keep devices from moving. We now have medicine embedded devices that now we have to have control environment within in the pouching. What are the trends that you see ahead in terms of medical device packaging? And what are you doing to sort of address this new sort of almost zeitgeist in terms of how we're changing under this new moniker of sterile barrier system? Yeah, obviously people are trying to eliminate reduce waste. That's where you might see some of these kind of 
card systems within a pouch. That needs a careful look because it can be complicated getting the product off those cards, which impacts your, your usability. One thing that we see is the proliferation of bioabsorbables, right? This is really complicating validation because bioabsorbables by nature are, are very, very sensitive to the environment. So that needs control. So it's not just a package. It's how much humidity is seen in the assembly process and how much handling is, is going on between assembly and sterilization. One thing that we've done to handle this is we've put in a what we call a dry room, which is very low, low, low humidity levels that we process these bioabsorbables in. And we've also brought in in-house EO sterilization to reduce the time between when the product is assembled to when it goes into the sterilizer. One really important consideration, right, with these bioabsorbables is the actual sterilization cycle. Honestly, they need it to be dry and they need it to be quick at a high level, right? And that's easier said than done because you've got to show that your bio burden that you're getting the log reduction in your bio burden and achieving, you know, your SAL sterilization level that, that's required. This is an area of real issue here that customers don't really understand because a lot of these kind of standard cycles for EO in particular are not adequate for absorbables. Yeah, we see a lot of our customers are coming to us with a host of pharmacopoeia embedded on their device, medicated stents and so on. Any good news in our industry in terms of the regulatory stuff? You know, we, a lot of the podcasts that we chat here, a lot of the people we're talking about are like, gosh, you know, it just seems like every time we turn around, we're facing UDI right now, which is challenging a lot of device companies. A host of other just sort of denseness that keeps on piling on and it costs go up. The consumer of medical devices are famously opposed to expensive medical devices. We have to be apologetic almost for the devices that we sell. So how do we help in that environment when we continue to have these high expectations? I mean, obviously, we're all looking for efficacious medical devices that are vetted. We want them sterile and safe to the point of care. That's a no-brainer. But as we do this, we're being taxed by these costs that keep on burdening MD&Ms. And I'm on the, we sell machinery for packaging here. We're the last stop in that checking account. So when they come to us, they're already out of money. We get beat up. We, we try to develop machinery that meets that cost containment model for healthcare. But at one point, you know, when we're trying to staff buildings full of highly educated engineers, regulatory expert, it, it burdens our organization. How do you guys manage this sort of systematically to where these new, under the new sterile barrier system and UDIs and those sort of things that you're not burdened to the point of breaking? Good point. Well, I think it, it starts with really understanding the standard and, and applying, a, I'm not going to call it a minimum, but applying a realistic procedure, right? That That's what's really required for this particular package, not to over-engineer it because these standards can be qualified. So as you mentioned, the, the, the shalls and the must need to be carefully considered, right? You don't want to overkill it. One thing that we've done, I think that's very innovative is we have pre-validated not our packages per se, but our seals. So what we've done to kind of reduce cost and, and improve the time is we've standardized on certain seals. 
And that, you know, you're talking about certain parameters of a ceiling and let's just use a Tyvek lid on a rigid tray, right? So we've gone through and we've said, all right, here's a standard seal design, not a tray design, but the seal. And we've gone through, you know, going through the actual validation cycle with accelerated and real-time aging to actually say, if we stay within these seal requirements, these seal design parameters, we've made a case to the FDA through a validation document that we actually have and provide to the customers that they don't need to repeat the seal validation. We've already done it. You just need to show that during transportation testing, that that seal has remained intact. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing we've, we've done kind of in the real world to reduce the cost and time of this. Cause geez, after 40 years, you know, <laughs> you get good at you stuff, see a right? lot of packages, yeah. but they kind of come down to the same thing, right? You've got to seal a piece of plastic. So yeah. why not validate that? So that's something mm-hmm. that's been very interesting for us to go through. Yeah. I mean, I think we do similar things. We're also an ISO 17025 laboratory. We have two labs. And what we try to do in, with the sale of our packaging machinery is we try to, I'm not going to say templatize, but we certainly provide a checklist and boilerplate some of the stuff that's already been done. I'm on well, the KIP committee and we several of the groups there are talking a lot about, hey, look, if we already have a regulatory process or a process for a medical device and we're trying to get that device you know, safe and sterile to the point of care, how can we truncate some of these processes as in order to sort of grease the skids a bit? And I think that's really the only way we're going to be able to manage this. It's getting very complicated. I speak with a lot of very frustrated medical device packaging people because many of them are also tasked with the actual med device. So they're on the device side and they've also been, hey, we're a small company. We have six engineers. Guess what? You're our new packaging engineer. And we see that quite a bit. So what you're doing there is is really uh, terrific. Like we do that with IQ. If you're going to get one of our machines, we give you an IQ checklist that helps you get through that process and conform without you having to start from the very beginning. There's other things, there are a lot of little nuances to establishing your your criteria for validation that can be quite helpful. And I, I can talk about one in particular, and it has to do with aging. The requirement of the standard is that you know, you have to do aging tests to make sure the seal stays acceptable over time. And what we see is a, a lot of customers just assume that we're going to put product in a package, we're going to send it through a transportation, and then we're going to put it in an oven and also do real-time testing to make sure it stays in spec. Mm-hmm. That can be problematic. And I'll tell you why. It's You take a, you know, a Tyvek lid on a rigid tray, you know, that can withstand 130 degrees Fahrenheit, no problem. But some of the devices we see can't. Mm. And when you when you're doing validation to package actual package product for the seal, that can become problematic because you failed your test, but you don't you don't know why. Is it the seal? Is it the product itself? So we recommend actually separating that, doing seal testing validation with empty packages and it lets you isolate the actual seal from the product and it reduces cost. And also what we recommend to customers to save money down the road is let's validate that seal for an, if you need a three year shelf life, let's validate it to five, right? It's only just say two and a half months more work or time Mm -hmm. in accelerated aging chamber 
But what you end up with is a package that can be used for other products or if the customer decides to extend the shelf life of that product, it's already validated. So there's this few tricks to the trade, right? Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're working with an experienced packaging partner, it can save some time and money by working through you know, the standards because the standard doesn't dictate exactly how to do it. It mm-hmm. just dictates what you need to achieve in essence. Yeah, I like what you're saying. I'm a musician. I play drums in a band with a bunch of other old guys. And one of the things that we talk about on amplifiers is headroom. So an amplifier may go to 10, but it's only meant to be used at eight. So that other sort of theoretical in there gives you a little bit more something, but you don't want to have that edge. For instance, we have customers who are buying machines that go to 400 degrees and they want to validate their process on a machine that may have five degrees plus or minus tolerance, they want to validate it at 20 degrees and they're outside. They don't know what that theoretical limit is. So having that extra headroom, that extra space provides a little bit of that more sort of worst case scenario buffer that we're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the end, even though it's a complicated standard, understanding it, it lets you kind of design the process, design your validation process to be successful because in the end, in our opinion, it's not so much the standard requirements, it's the execution of it. And mm-hmm. if 30% of package validations fail, that's the real cost, not so much the burden of proof that's required in the standard. One example of this that we see time and time again is bio burden. To validate a package in the sterilization to achieve 10 to the minus six probability of contamination, you've got to understand what your beginning bio burden is. And a lot of customers don't. And this is especially problematic if your contract manufacturer, if you're consigning raw material to your contract manufacturer, in essence, you're, you're taking the responsibility off your contract manufacturer by buying and supplying them the raw material. And that that may save expense or unit costs, but it, it can be problematic with bio burden because a lot of the times there's no control over that. And your sterilizer, right, is validated to a certain beginning bio burden. So if you end up getting components in that exceed that, that can be very problematic. That's another example of just good solid understanding of the standards and having them properly executed so that you don't have problems down the road. Yeah. So these are these are issues you got to go through with the customer so that they understand, you know, the risks and the benefits of that. In this case, us controlling the supply chain lets us dive in there and really work with the suppliers to make sure that their controls are in place and the bio burden is consistent. Mm, that's a very good point. Well, any final closing sagacious advice to nascent packaging engineers? One of the biggest maybe stumbling blocks that you see right out of the gate. And, you know, maybe also to that, you know, when do we give it up and say, hey, it's time to maybe have somebody else take over this process for us? What is a candidate for those kind of companies? Right. Well, you know, with a, not trying to seem like, you know, we want everybody to come to JPAC. I, I think <laughs> that was a trick question, right? Yeah. I, I'm kind of going to go there and I'm kind of not. And it's just because I think it's the right thing to do with the, with the standards becoming so complicated. We see a lot of customers just trying to work through individual players 
to get this all done, right? So you've got labs that test, you've got sterilizers that do their thing, you've got manufacturers that do their processes, you've got raw material suppliers, and you're trying to coordinate all these individuals to achieve a a 60 page standard, right? So we do find value in having somebody that's experienced with the whole process because they're all linked. Sterilization validation is linked to your packaging, which is linked to your manufacturing validation. And having someone that can understand that whole process is very valuable. So whether it's a contract manufacturer you're working with or consultants, I really recommend not trying to coordinate all these individual services, you know, independently. What if a medical device company, say a startup, wants to maybe kind of pull from a menu of services? Is it all in or nothing? Or can you take a bit and piece here with your offerings? That's a really good question. I I think you can. I think you can. I think turnkey is always the best way to go. If you're not comfortable with that, you know, there's certain ways to break that apart, but it all comes back to the standard and what questions to ask, right? So you're asking your contract manufacturer, how are you controlling bio burden? But that comes from an understanding that your sterilization validation is all validated around a starting bio burden, Mm. right? So it really comes back to the knowledge of the standard and whether you try to do it yourself, coordinating multiple suppliers, we'd recommend at least using some form of a consulting arrangement that can lay out the whole process and just understanding this is not about just taking a package and throwing it through a transportation study. Well, Jeff, I appreciate uh, you joining me today. You know, and I would like to put you on the spot here. I'd like to have you back maybe at one point so we can chat about ETO and sterilization, get a little bit more granular with that, kind of moved away from that. But it's something I definitely would like to talk about. I know our listeners would certainly like to hear more about sterilization validation. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. You are a very bright guy. You're certainly in the know when you're a, a sagacious elder like me. And I appreciate uh, <laughs> Well, Char- Well, Charlie, yeah, got a lot of arrows in the back, as I'm sure you are. And I, again, <laughs> thanks so much for having me and hope listeners got some good nuggets of information out of it. They did indeed. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks, Charlie. If you'd like to find out more about JPAC Medical, just uh, pop on over to their website. It's j-packmedical.com. They also have a telephone over there if you're one of those kind of calling people, 603-692-9955. Well, medical device manufacturers and medical device packaging professionals, as always, I appreciate you supporting our little podcast out here. We continue to grow thanks to you. Look forward to having you back on the next episode of Sterile Packaging on Track Radio, Spot Radio. This podcast is made possible by Vanderstahl Scientific. Executive producer, Lisa Wasberg. Director of Media Service, Hector Garcia. Audio engineering and editing by Joel and our friends at East Coast Studios. And this is Jonathan Lockwood saying thanks for your support, medical device manufacturers. See you next time on Spot Radio. Spot Radio.